If you haven't already, would you go ahead and turn in your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 9. Lord willing, we'll finish out the portion of scripture here in chapter 9. Let's begin in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon to afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die And the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Would you join with me in prayer, asking that the Lord would be gracious to us yet again this morning, helping us to hear and to receive his word. Gracious God and loving Father, we look to you this morning. How much we reason we have to give thanks, as we've been reminded this morning. How much reason we have to rejoice in what you've given to us in your Son. And yet for all of the thanks and for all of the rejoicing, Lord, we confess that we have great need. Lord, we confess that we have great need because how easily our ears are stopped up, our eyes do become blinded, our hearts become dull, and though we can have your word right before us, how easily and how quickly we become numb to it or completely ignorant of it. And yet, Lord, we come to you in faith because we know that you are able to take the hardest of hearts, the dullest of mind, the blindest of eyes, and that you are able to bring light, to bring softness, to bring faith and renewal. Lord, that even in the weariness of a week, even in the shame and the grief of all that we've put our hand to, our eye to, or traversed into, that, Lord, you promise to extend grace and mercy in your Son. So, Father, would you do that this morning as we consider your word? Would you do that this morning as we hear from the risen Jesus by his own word, and would you cause our lives to be formed and to be shaped by it, we pray. Amen. Well, as you probably know, as we read and as we study through the Gospel of Mark, what we're doing is 
we're encountering the words and the works of Jesus Christ. As Mark announces, he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one who's been sent by the Father to rescue his people. And while we read throughout these chapters of Christ feeding the multitudes, we read of him healing the lepers, casting out demons, even raising those who are dead, these miracles that Mark gives to us are mere shadows compared to what Christ has ultimately come to do. Everything in Mark's gospel is marching forward to this one climactic event. And Jesus, in light of that, has been patiently, gradually, yet plainly, revealing this ultimate purpose to his disciples. And Mark will record a total of three times in which Christ pulls the twelve aside and explicitly speaks to them of his betrayal, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And with each instance, what Christ does is not only speaking of the reality of these facts, not only speaking of the reality of his death and resurrection, but he uses that revelation as an opportunity to clarify and correct the disciples' understanding of what it actually means to follow him. We've already read the first prediction of this back in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And that was followed by Peter's rebuke. Peter rebuked Christ saying, Not so, Lord. And Jesus then went on to teach about the necessity of cross-bearing discipleship. The second revelation we just read of here in chapter 9, verse 31, where Jesus again says that the Son of Man must suffer, die, and rise again. And again, what we see is what immediately follows this revelation is the disciples arguing about greatness, Jesus teaching about true greatness, and further teaching about discipleship. And yet again, you can probably guess the pattern in Mark chapter 10, when Jesus again explicitly says that the Son of Man would suffer and die and rise again. This time it's followed by the request of James and John to have the chief seats, the best seats in the kingdom. And Jesus goes on to teach about servant leadership. What Mark and really what all of the scripture is making clear is that Jesus most certainly is the mighty Messiah, the Son of God, but his role in that is the one of the suffering servant who offers himself as the ransom for sin. And so it's this repeated emphasis throughout the Gospels, throughout Christ's ministry, that is put before us. And because it's the repeated emphasis, not only in Mark, not only in Luke, but also echoed in our own scriptures in the prophet Isaiah, explicitly reminding us that yes, he's the Messiah, but yes, he's the suffering Messiah. If that is the emphasis, then what are we to learn of that? If the repeated emphasis is the suffering of Christ and the glory of Christ, how does that shape the manner in which we follow this Christ as his disciples? Or let's just say it really plainly. If Jesus is going to be given over to death and to rise again, how ought that shape our understanding of following this Jesus? If you bear the name of Christian or if you are considering what that might mean to be called Christian, then passages like these are explicitly important. What it means for us in this portion is three things. If Christ is the suffering Messiah, who dies and yet rises, then for us who follow, it means, one, our greatness must be redefined. It means generosity must be extended and Gehenna must be feared. There's something to do with greatness, with generosity, and Gehenna itself, or hell. Let's consider how greatness must be redefined if this Jesus is one who dies yet rises. We see this in the encounter back in verses 33 through 37. And what Mark tells us by way of narration is that 
upon arriving at the town of Capernaum, Jesus, he takes up the opportunity to ask the disciples what was the topic of discussion along the way. Now, this is the sort of question that a parent will often ask a child, knowing full well what the answer is, but it's an opportunity to raise the issue in order to speak to the issue. And the disciples' silence, as Mark records, is really the only answer that you need. What are they going to say? Jesus, uh, you've been talking about your betrayal, your death that awaits you. Um, We've been having a bit of a debate about who's the greatest amongst us. There's no easy way to get around that. In fact, their silence betrays them and that they know there's no easy way. But yet Jesus answers for them. And he begins by giving a bit of instruction in verse 35. Fine, he says more or less. Let's talk about greatness. But notice the way in which Jesus does this. He knows full well what they were talking about. He knows full well what they were arguing about. And yet, even though they were arguing about greatness, Jesus does not step on a, up on a soapbox and slap down this topic of greatness as if it was a word that should never be spoken of. Instead, what he does is he takes the opportunity to completely redefine what true greatness is. Essentially, he says, you desire greatness, but the problem is that your definition of greatness is entirely backwards. And what he says is, if you want to talk about matters of rank, who is the greatest of all time, then what you need to do is considering the categories of least and servant. In natural terms, and really I think in most every culture, greatness is synonymous with self-promotion, with power, with authority, and title. Think of the way that this works in your workplace, your university, even amongst your siblings at home. True greatness, who has the most privilege? Who has the most authority? Who has the most power? But when we follow Jesus, what we find is that those categories are absolutely obliterated. Please understand, ambition is not a dirty word. We are wired by God's design to seek glory. We are wired for ambition. We've been created by God to pursue glory, to seek after glory with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. But according to Jesus, the glory that we were created to seek, it's not our own. Is this not the first question of the catechism that many of us are so familiar with? What is the chief end of man? Right there in that summation, it has to do with ambition. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To be ambitious, to seek glory. There is a godly greatness. And Scripture helps us to see just what that looks like. And Christ explicitly says right here that it has everything to do with about being last, being a servant. Certainly the Apostle Paul picks up on this. Philippians chapter 2, when he begins to speak of the Christian having the mind of Christ, meaning if we are united to Christ, that our minds have begun to be renewed, and that we completely begin to see things differently, and the way that we think about things works itself out in the way that we relate to one another. And what is the exhortation in Philippians 2? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or how Paul would write, to the church at Rome in Romans 12.10, and just simply says, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another 
in showing honor. That is the sort of ambition. That is the sort of greatness that Jesus is speaking about. Competitive, outdoing one another to show honor to the other person. Competitive servanthood, if you want. So in short, the sort of greatness that's expected in the kingdom is that of servanthood. That's the instruction. But he goes on like a good teacher and gives the illustration. And that's in verses 36 and 37. Because Jesus knows to say that greatness is servanthood, it's not enough. Because what do we do? We begin to apply that statement differently. We hear greatness is servanthood. Great. Then I'm going to serve the people that I prefer to serve. I'll be a servant to those that can make my life better. I'll be a servant to those who have a power to advance my cause. I'll be a servant to those that are easy to serve. I'm like Jesus. And Jesus says, not so fast. What he does by way of illustration is he takes a child, puts them right in the center of the twelve, puts them onto his lap, and qualifies what he means when he says, servant of all. To welcome or to receive a child, it offers you no immediate reward, especially in that culture. Children are not revered. Children are not idolized. To put a child in his midst and say, to welcome a child even as little as this, means that you are serving, that you are welcoming someone who has no influence, someone who has no authority. Because a child does not advance your cause by serving them. And all the mothers said, amen. If we want to think of greatness, we must think along the lines of servanthood. And when we think of servanthood, we must broaden our definition to include even those who bring us no benefit. We serve the sick. We serve the weak. We serve the powerless. We serve the helpless. We serve the ungrateful. We serve the undeserving. That is the sort of greatness and that is the sort of servanthood that Christ is pressing for. Friends, I don't know about you, but I need my standard of greatness to be redefined quite often. For it's not what we naturally assume, is it? The metrics of true greatness, they are contrary to our natural intuition. They are contrary to our cultural models. They are contrary to our business plans. They are contrary to our corporate culture. And if we take up Jesus' definition of greatness, then let's ask, what is a great church? What is a great Christian? How would this understanding of greatness reshape how you interact with others at work? How would this definition of greatness reshape the way that you relate even to your own children? Or spouse, if we are going to follow a Christ who calls us as followers to take up our cross and to follow him, if we are following the same Jesus that was delivered up to be killed, then our understanding of greatness, it needs to be redefined. But secondly, not only does greatness need to be redefined, what Jesus teaches here in the next section is that generosity must be extended. You see this in verses 38 through 41. And notice what John does. In verse 37, John picks up on Jesus' emphasis of, in my name. And then in verse 38, says, oh, we saw something regarding your name. Let's talk about that, Jesus. We saw someone. I want you to know, he was casting out demons in your name. We didn't recognize him. He's not one of us. But don't worry, we tried to stop him. Wonderfully zealous, but woefully mistaken. What's John's concern here? Notice it's not that the other person was somehow misrepresenting Jesus. 
John's concern is that this other one was not one of the twelve. John's words betray his self-interest. Do you notice what he said? He's not following us. <laughs> the irony here, if you just read Mark chapter 9, verses 14 and following, the bitter irony here is that John is trying to stop a man from doing the very thing that the disciples could not do. Cast out a demon. Do you remember the disciples, the three with Jesus, descend from the Mount of Transfiguration? It's absolute chaos down below. The father with the boy, the demoniac, the disciples could not cast him out. And right on the heels of that, John raising his hand saying, Jesus, we saw somebody doing something. Yes, we couldn't necessarily do, but we stopped him from doing it. Why, John? Well, he doesn't, he doesn't follow us. The concern here is jealousy. The concern here is tribalism. The concern here is territorialism. Remember, the disciples are already marked out by rivalry. They are already the ones arguing about who is the greatest. And when selfish ambition and distorted views of greatness shape our thinking, even the good works of others can be seen as a threat. He was not following us is only a problem if we also believe that the world ought to revolve around us. That's really what John is saying. So what's Jesus' correction? Essentially what Jesus says is, John, the kingdom of God is much bigger than you imagine. And the concern ought to be over my name not their tribe. Jesus lays out the driving principle here in verse 40. If you look at how this breaks down, in verse 40 he says the principle is, for the one who's not against us is for us. And then right above that in verse 39, and right below that in verse 41, he gives a couple of examples. John, what matters at the end of the day is that their attachment is to me, not your knowledge of them. The question is not if he is in your group. It's a question of his allegiance to me. Essentially, whatever this exorcist was doing, was doing it in Christ's name, which implies that he understood it was not just the mere words or like the seven sons of Sceva that just thought they could throw out an incantation of Christ's name. But Christ says, it was done in my name, the power of God. And so the underlying principle is that Jesus' kingdom is bigger than the disciples presently imagined. A great or a mighty work in verse 39, or what he says in verse 41, a seemingly insignificant work, a cup of cold water. If both of those are done in my name, the emphasis is that they are attached to me, and therefore because they are done in my name and attached to my name and attached to my person, that's a good thing. They are not against us, but for us. So what we see here is the reaction of John to zealously but really mistakenly guard what was being done in Jesus' name. It's a problem that runs like a disease right through church history. This didn't end with the twelve. It's a disease, ironically enough, with the sort of symptoms that are more easily seen in others than in ourselves. It's the sort of Christianity that is marked out by cynicism more than rejoicing. It's the sort of Christianity that is suspicious, that's weary, that's, that's skeptical of other believers, rather than trusting, hopeful, Consider it. It's a sort of disease that plagues Christ's followers all through church history. And friends, it's the sort of disease that Veritas Church is not immune from. I'm not saying that we throw out objective truth or sound doctrine or even the need to contend for the faith. Clearly we do. But the concern of John here is more about tribalism than it is about truth. 
It reflects this sort of attitude that says, hey, I don't know you. And because I don't know you, I'm going to assume you are doctrinally suspect until proven otherwise. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Or how about James' instruction to us in chapter 3? But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. They were not following us. The sort of spirit that we're speaking of here and the word that we would want to use is that of Catholicity. Not Roman Catholicism, but Catholicity, small c, in the sense of seeking out unity beyond our immediate local tribe, whatever that might be. It's not unity at any cost, but it is seeking to maintain the unity of the faith that has been handed down to us in the scriptures. Evangelical Catholicity, again, small c, is about seeing God at work outside of our particular context and rejoicing in it. Evangelical Catholicity is the sort of attitude that prays desperately for revival and for salvation of sinners and rejoices when it does not happen here, but it is happening somewhere else. It's not a matter of, do they follow us? Are they members here? Do they bear the same church name as me? And through scripture and the creeds and confessions of the church, we simply affirm that there is one holy apostolic church. The church, the bride for whom Christ died. What this means is that it's possible to be faithfully devoted to a robust confession of faith to be precise in matters of sound doctrine, to hold to biblical positions with conviction, and yet recognize that the kingdom of God is bigger than me. And remember, the church is the crowning achievement of the work of salvation, planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, brought into reality by the Spirit. It's the Father's plan from the fullness of time to sum up all things in heaven and on earth under the headship of Christ, Ephesians 1. The plan is realized in part by this covenant community that's described in Scripture as a body, as a building, as a bride, with Christ as its head. Ephesians 4, verse 4, there is one body, and one spirit, just as you were called to the hope, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. What this means is that the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord is the fundamental unifying principle within the church's Catholicity and its authoritative center that defines who we are. All endeavors that are aimed at extending fellowship between churches then must flow from this this one confession and aim at deepening our, our mutual embrace of this confession. That is why one of the major emphasis 
of the ministry of the word among us is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And while it may be tempting to say, look, I'm all for unity. But the problem here is that there are these major doctrinal differences that prevent deeper expressions of Catholic fellowship. Perhaps, but not always. Oftentimes, upon closer inspection, it's actually the sins of rivalry. It's actually suspicion. It's actually self-interest or pride that erode this unity among God's people. So wisdom would say, whenever and wherever these sins are discovered in our lives, we must repent of them. Remembering that it's not the name of a particular church or denomination that's ultimately at stake. What is it? It's the name of Christ, whose name that we bear that's ultimately at stake. If we are to follow a Savior who was betrayed and given over to death in order to bring about the life that we need, then we must follow him as those extending generosity to others. But not only extending this generosity and not only granting it in a broader circle than we may assume, the last implication here is that Gehenna must be feared. And when I say Gehenna, it is because it's the word that is used here to describe hell, which Christ speaks of several times. This is the portion in Mark 9 from verses 42 through 50. Remember that everything that Jesus says here flows from his explicit revelation that he would be delivered into the hands of men, that he would be killed, and that he would rise again. Meaning, if we are going to keep the emphasis of this passage before us, we must see how the sacrifice of Christ amplifies the sinfulness of sin and the horrors of hell. Notice what Christ does. Notice how the phrase, it would be better, is repeated four times. Look back at verse 42. It would be better than a millstone around your neck. Verse 43. It would be better to be a cripple with two hands than go to hell. Verse 45, it would be better to be lame with two feet than than with two feet thrown into hell. And then verse 47, again, it would be better to have one eye than be thrown into hell. What is Jesus doing? He's making his point by way of contrast. Sin is the biblical word to describe any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's what sin is. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. God created you and I in his image, and he created us to reflect his glory, and he has given us his law to show us what it means to live in such a way that is going to bring him the glory that he deserves. That is what the Ten Commandments are. That is the expression of who God is and what it means for us to live as his image bearers. So any time that you or I fail to live up to the standard of the law, disregard the authority of God's law, that is sin. But notice what Jesus does. He goes beyond the mere acts of sinning. And he puts the spotlight on the causes for sin. He says, first of all, we need to consider any cause that would bring others to sin. That's verse 42. We need to consider causing others to sin. And here Jesus again speaks of these little ones. I think this is in contrast to the great ones. This is in keeping with the theme of true greatness, the disciples' concern over who is the greatest. And Jesus flips the emphasis and says, you are all wrapped up in the greatest. But I say, whoever 
causes one of the least who believe in me to sin. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Again, the emphasis and area of concern are those who are attached to the name of Jesus. But how often we filter our willingness to sin against others along the lines of the other person's influence, notoriety, or their ability to call us out. But Jesus says, I don't care if they are the littlest, the least in the kingdom. I don't care if they have zero authority He warns that he is the protector of his disciples, even down to the least and to the little. And that whoever would willfully cause even the least or the littlest to stumble and to be tempted into sin would find that having your lungs filled with water as you sink to the bottom of the sea and drown would be better than facing Jesus in judgment. Causing others to sin, but... He goes on and speaks of causes of our own sin in verses 43 onward. Now, Jesus is teaching here about the hand, the foot, the eye. Probably familiar to many of us. And while Jesus is using hyperbole to make his point, the sting and the shock of what he says here should not be blunted. Hyperbole does not mean that's exaggeration and so you just throw it away. Hyperbole is saying this is so insane. This is so important. This is so misunderstood that I need to say it in such a way that you are going to think about what I'm saying. No, removing hands and feet and eyeballs will not ultimately remove sin from our hearts but the willingness to be ruthless with the causes for our sin must remain. When we see and experience the death and resurrection of Christ for what it is, friends, we will relate to our sin differently. For one, what we can pull from this is that we will inconvenience ourselves to avoid sin. Think about what Christ says. Notice that hands, feet, and eyes, those are all wonderfully good things. Those are necessary things that enrich our lives and make our lives easier. And yet, even if that very thing that is good and enriches your life, that is helpful, causes me to sin, I'll remove it. I'll be inconvenienced by this removal, because of what I understand sin to be and what I understand hell to be. So let's just stop there and ask, is there anything good or even necessary in your life that's a cause for sin? Is there some excuse that you're making as to why this must remain in your life, even though you know it is a continual opportunity to cause you to sin? We will inconvenience ourselves to avoid sin. But Jesus also said, we will remind ourselves of the wages of sin. Jesus speaks of hell. He speaks of it as a place of unquenchable fire. He quotes the prophet Isaiah, reminding us that it is a place where the worm, the maggot, does not die. The fire is not quenched. It is the word Gehenna, and it refers to the ravine just below the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem where all the refuse, all the garbage was thrown out, and there was a perpetual burning and stench. Now, as Jesus describes hell in this way, is it possible that he's using symbolic or figurative language to describe hell? Yes. But let's remember what figurative language is. In most cases, when we use 
figurative language to say, it was like we say that because the greatness of whatever it is we are trying to describe is beyond words. And so we accommodate and we resort to using images. We resort to using figurative languages because what we're saying, it's much more intense than the symbol, but the best I can do is tell you it is this. And that's the case with the symbolic language that the Bible employs for hell. Because the torments of hell, friends, they go They go beyond our human language. And scripture accommodates us in our human state, giving us pictures, giving us images, graphic words to describe the horrors of hell. And frankly, I would not be surprised to learn that a sinner in hell would do anything possible to trade their circumstances of the reality of what hell is like for that of an unquenchable fire. Meaning, unquenchable fire and worms that do not die cannot possibly do justice to the horror of what hell is. Friend, if you have wondered or if you've even worried about the idea of hell, please hear the plain teaching of Jesus that judgment is real, judgment is final, and it is eternal torment. And the terror of hell magnifies the urgency then of the gospel call because the scriptures not only proclaim the reality of hell, but they also proclaim the promise of mercy. And though we deserve hell because of our sin, God promises to pardon anyone who looks to Christ, believing, repenting of sin, and trusting that Christ is sufficient to save from sin. And Christian, the bottom line is that the sacrifice of Christ, it amplifies the sinfulness of sin and amplifies the horrors of hell. Would Christ, the Son of God, suffer and die if sin were not so vile and not so evil? Or as Spurgeon would say, if Christ has died for me, then I cannot trifle with the sin which killed my best friend. Now, quite often this passage is opened up and it's unpacked and an application to and dealing with lust or pornography or some form of sexual immorality, and for good reason. But please don't equate this portion of Scripture only to speaking of the particular temptations related to sexual immorality. Remember the context? Remember the context is that of pride? It's that of division? It's that of self-centered arrogance and the ideas of greatness that are antithetical to who Christ is. And to that, Christ is saying, cut it off, tear it out, be done with it. The ruthlessness of sin demands that we be ruthless with us. And it is absolutely foolish, it is absolutely arrogant to think that we can flirt with what causes sin or toy with those situations, places, or people that would lead us into sin and not be burned. Listen to Owen, John Owen. Every time sin rises to tempt or entice, it always seeks to express itself in the extreme. Listen to this insight. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. And every unbelieving thought would be atheism. Sin is like the grave that is never satisfied. Jesus wants us to see that this process of cutting out the causes for sin 
it's not only necessary, friends, it's most likely going to be painful. It's going to be inconvenient. But any pain, any inconvenience, any cutting out for the causes of sins by no means compares to the reality of hell. And Jesus warns us in plain language, we must deal with the causes for sin if we truly believe in the destructiveness of sin. Any temporary loss, any temporary pain, any temporary inconvenience that we feel in being ruthless with what causes sin is a mere paper cut compared to the pain of sin left unrepented of. As Christ would say in Matthew 10, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is what the disciples of Jesus know. Because I see the sinfulness of sin, because I see the destruction that sin brings upon others, the cost that is placed upon Jesus, the offense towards God, it causes me to willfully sacrifice even good things because of the incomparable greatness that's found in Christ. The warning here is not simply sin leads to hell, but it is also a gut check That if I'm a follower of Jesus and yet content to flirt with my sin, excuse it, justify it, leave little concern for its presence, I have a serious disconnect between what I profess with my mouth and what I live with my life. It's quite clear from Jesus' teaching that the destructiveness of sin, the reality of hell, and as he'll go on to speak in the last few verses, the pain of trial They're not flippant matters. Now for some, please hear me, this warning may be deeply misunderstood as nothing more than just another added burden to go be a better person and start doing good things and stop doing immoral things. And it would be a horrible mistake to hear this portion of a scripture and assume that all Jesus is calling us to do is make better life decisions and surround ourselves with positive influences. For others, the mistaken application would be a self-centered introspection, always gauging God's approval of you based upon your devotion to him. Have I cut off enough? Have I torn away enough? Have I sacrificed enough? Am I tedious enough? But to live this way, both mistakes, to respond this way, is to overlook the truth that informs all of Jesus' teaching here and in all of Scripture, that the warnings of Christ are illuminated by the cross of Christ. And if we do not illuminate the warnings of Scripture by the cross of Christ, we will misunderstand and misapply them. The only way for our hearts to be freed to fight sin, to serve others, to extend generosity beyond our own tribe is when we understand that Christ has done everything necessary, required to enable us to do so. Jesus experienced separation so that we wouldn't have to be. He was cut off from the Father so that we would not be. He lived the perfect life. He fulfilled the law, satisfies its demands, because we could not. And at the same time, he died the death that we deserve as lawbreakers. He rose from the grave so that we could know the true life for everyone who follows after him. The Son of Man was delivered into the hands of men, and they killed him. And when he was killed... After three days, he rose. What this means is that we follow a Savior who's crucified for our sin. That means no more condemnation. We follow a Savior that was raised unto life. That means the payment is sufficient and the wrath of God for our foul sin is satisfied. 
There is no wonder then that the Apostle John records the vision that he's given in the book of Revelation concerning this Son of Man. Or in this instance, the Lamb. Make yourself familiar with Revelation 5. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels. Numering myriads of myriads. Thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And friends, when we see Him, Him slain before the foundations of the world, and we see the one slain for our sin, that that was the reason for which he was slain. We cannot but help begin to join in this chorus and begin to understand what it means to live for someone else's glory besides our own. What it means to live for the glory of Christ. Because then we are the ones who say with Paul, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. And therefore I seek to glorify God in my body. That is the revolutionary understanding of what the gospel brings into glad obedience that seeks to cut off, to put away, to deal with sin and joyfully turns in that putting away towards Christ and saying, slain, forgiven, worthy of my glory and full, as the song was saying, wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let's look to this risen Christ now. Father, we... Rejoice to know and to hear the good news that you give to us in plain language right alongside the most sobering, grievous news that we could ever possibly imagine. Father, thank you that you have given us your Son. Thank you that in the wisdom that you possess within yourself, that you determined that he would be betrayed, that he would be killed, that he would be buried in a tomb, and yet he would raise. Father, we ask and we pray that you would cause this simple yet profound message to continue to shape and transform our lives as your people. Continue to shape us as a church that the very gospel foundation that has been laid would continue to be reinforced to bear much fruit and to continue to call out to announce mercy in the face of judgment. Lord, would you continue to strengthen us and nourish our faith that we might rest soundly upon the sacrifice of Christ and the the assurance of his resurrection, the sufficiency of his payment, the righteousness that is not our own, but that is given to us, the very righteousness of Christ. Help us, Lord, in our fight against sin. Help us in our weakness. Enable us to put to death that you might continue to conform us to the image of your Son, we pray. Amen. Church, this...